Hi, welcome to More Than Meets the Eye, a podcast that explores the extraordinary journeys of ordinary people who in their darkest times made the changes, evolved, sought a new way to live, found their purpose, and above all, never gave up. I hope the stories I share on here give you hope, inspiration, and above all, courage to just start. On today's show, I have the amazing Roland Krosky, a pancreatic cancer survivor, who shows us how knowledge is power and the work we do in our younger days may well just pay off in our older age. So with that said, I'd like to welcome Roland to the first ever episode of More Than Meets the Eye. Roland, it's an honour to have you on today. Well, thank you. Hello. Um, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm slightly bemused and surprised to be your guest, but uh, here I am. Yeah, not at all. I think um, it would be really, um, I think it's really important that I set the scene of how we met. And um, and I guess, really, you were the reason um, I started more than meets the eye. So I remember we were at a patient um, patient type of focus group type meeting at um, South Box Hospice. Um, and I remember listening to what you were saying and I thought, wow, this, this, this guy knows what he's talking about and how inspirational from everything that he's been through. And actually that's when the idea of more than meets the eye was founded. I thought, how amazing would it be for me to tell the story of ordinary people doing extraordinary things? And, and, and that, that was when it was born. So um, you are the reason why um, this podcast exists, I guess. Um, and, and, I, and I just remember thinking, you know, you, were, you, you, you had to be the first guest on my podcast. Well, I'm flattered, thank you. Um, I don't feel extraordinary. Uh, I want you to um, take me back to your earliest memory, which which you believed shaped who you are today, just so we can set the scene for the for the listeners. Fine. Uh, so I was born in Wolverhampton, um, but we moved when I was about uh, just nearly six years old uh, from out of the city of Wolverhampton into the country. Um, I have small, short, a few memories of Wolverhampton itself and going to my first school, but nothing of any great significance. Um, but when we moved to Doveridge in Derbyshire in uh, the middle of 1955, um, that was significant because we moved into a larger house with a lot of countryside around us and a lot of our own land. We had three acres of land. And, uh, and really, it was the start of an idyllic um, childhood uh, with so much opportunity and so much freedom uh, to, to do whatever we wanted. I'm one of three siblings, I'm the youngest of three, and um, I was easily led astray by my brother and sister. Uh, older brother sadly passed on in uh, 2019, and my sister is still alive. Uh, I was going to say alive and well, but actually she's also a cancerous sufferer. Um, she's quite seriously ill, but she gets on with it, and uh, and we all celebrate each year that goes by that she survives another year. So, where did you? Um, I know that you talked to me before about um, going to boarding school. So, when I was eight, I went off to a boarding preparatory school 
also out in the countryside, um, and that was a pleasant life. But uh, when I was, uh, I then moved on to a senior school, which was slightly more traumatic because I didn't like that so much. Um, but um, I think it became traumatic because my idyllic childhood suddenly abruptly ended in that my parents grew apart and at the same time as they were growing apart my father went bankrupt uh, because he was well-intentioned but unlucky enough to uh, be hit by the winter of the, the appalling winter of 1962-63 he was a, a plant hire contractor and civil engineer and he had a firm and a, and a modest business and he kept all his employees on and all his machines on hire and so forth at a time when nobody was paying him because the winter had closed everything down and uh, by the time he realized that it was unsustainable it was too late he, the bank foreclosed on us and they seized our house and our assets while i was at boarding school so all of a sudden i had the only possessions i had were those that were with me at school uh, the only clothes i had were those that were with me at school and, and a few trifling things that my mother had managed to salvage so i went from I went to a strange existence. I spent a couple of years or more um, living with other people, with friends, with, with the families of friends, um, but with no home base of my own. I only really got the home base by the time I became 18 and was leaving school. Um, so it was, a, it was a weird existence, an independence. But my mother was very resilient and she'd always taught us, even, even as small children, how to cook and to sew and to knit. To knit of all things. Um, and so we were quite self-sufficient in many ways, and it was quite normal before the hope before the breakup um, for any one of the three of us children to cook the evening meal for the family. Uh, usually the four of us, my father was working late, but uh, it was normal that one of us would just cook the meal, and so I was quite self-sufficient even at age nine, ten, eleven, to be cooking the evening meal for, for everybody as part of my term. I mean, that's amazing in itself, right? Um, that you were able to um, do all of these things. And that's a you know, testament to your, to your mom who you know, gave you the life skills that I guess um, a lot of children these days maybe don't have. Yes, uh, and I have hastened to add it. They were life skills being taught, not out of adversity, just out of you know, making sure we were self-sufficient. And, and and you're right, they were good life skills to have. Um, and they have helped me subsequently. Um, uh, indeed, even when I first joined the army, uh, I found I had a difference to many of my peers simply because I could cook, I could sew. Um, and these things didn't daunt me in the slightest, whereas some of my contemporaries found that all quite challenging, along with the complete transition of uh, becoming part of the military. So how long was the period where you didn't have a home? So was it between like 12 and 18 or? No, I'd say more between 14 and 17. That's still a considerable um, I didn't, I didn't, time. Yeah, I, I, I don't have, I, I certainly never recorded anything in a diary. I don't have um, strong memories of that being a problem um, again partly because i was already becoming quite independent and uh, 
when I wasn't staying with this particular friend, who is my best friend still, um, and, and his parents were caring for me, um, I was off walking and hiking in places like the Lake District with another good school friend, and we'd, we'd go away with our backpacks and our tents for four or five or six weeks at a time. In fact, in the last year, we went to Ireland for six weeks, um, just on our own, the two of us. So it wasn't as fragmented as it might sound. Um, the, the big thing was I had very, very few possessions residual from that uh, seizure of the house and uh, the disruption generally. Uh, but you learn, you adapt. Of course, I mean, listening from kind of my point of view it does sound like quite a traumatic thing to go through, but I guess um, you were living it, so you just had to get through it. And when you did, you kind of just moved on to whatever the next phase of life was. Yes, I'm sure that is the case. Um, it probably was traumatic, and it, it was certainly reflected in my academic results because I was reasonably high achiever at school until then, and then I kind of got lazy and distracted and, and in a soft sort of way went wrong, did all, of, all of the, the wrong things. I mean, not, not maliciously wrong or not evilly wrong, but I misbehaved uh, and so forth. And I suspect the school was kind of accommodating of that poor behaviour, uh, knowing my circumstances. Um, but I, I left with negligible A-levels, which I should have left with quite reasonable A-levels. But for all of that, I actually had quite a good education. I just was lazy in how I um, adapted it or, or took it on and used it. But anyway, I, um, I, I initially just um, drifted into civil engineering uh, and working on a big civil engineering construction contract of the building of Rugeley B power station. And while there, I realized uh, that I needed to get some slightly more purpose to what I was doing. I was just a chain boy. A chain boy is, is somebody who just helps assist the engineers by carrying around their equipment. And, and the, the word chain is because a chain was a traditional measuring device. Um, obsolete, obviously, but um, back in Victorian times, the world was mapped using chains. Um, so uh, I... My, I bumped into my father, who I was not out of contact with, but I didn't see very often. And he said, why don't you, have you considered joining the army? Have you considered going to the Royal Engineers? And I thought, well, that's a good idea. So pretty well the next day I went to an army recruiting office and signed up. Oh, wow. So that was the next phase of, of life where you joined the military. Did you, did, you, did you just know that that's what you wanted to do or it just felt like the right thing to do? At that time in your life? I did not know that's what I wanted to do. Um, I had decided wrongly, but I decided that I did not want to be a civil engineer. My father was a civil engineer and in my eyes had failed at that. My brother was a civil engineer, was in the process of becoming a civil engineer, and I just didn't want to follow in their footsteps. Um, so when my father mentioned the army and the Corps of Royal Engineers, I thought, well, that will give me a base uh, and a focal point that I currently don't have. And so that seemed like a, a good choice in that sense. Um, so that's why I did that. I applied to be an officer, uh, went through a selection process, was successful at that, 
and I ended up at uh, the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst in January 1968. Oh wow! So Sandhurst is is quite um, it's it's known to be um, quite elite. Was is that how you found it? Yes, uh, it is elite, and I was very privileged and very lucky, and I'm very grateful for that. So, did you? How long were you in the military for? So I retired at age 55, which meant I did 34 years, what, what the army still calls, what the, the services still call of adult service from age 21. Um, but actually, of course, I was there at age, at age 18 or just closing on 19. I guess moving, moving into kind of um, our conversation and why we're here today, um, if you don't mind me taking me back to when you first started to feel unwell, and what that process looked like? Yeah, not at all. So um, I, I guess I'd been feeling unwell during 2019, but wasn't overtly aware. Um, little things were going wrong, and I wasn't overtly aware that those little things were going wrong. So we were on holiday in Sicily in October 2019, when I suddenly developed jaundice. And, um, my wife spotted the, the yellowness of my eyes and my skin. Uh, we went to go and went to go went to a uh, a uh, uh, blood testing agency in a little town in Sicily, which was absolutely brilliant. They took a whole load of blood samples at eleven o'clock in the morning, gave us the results at one o'clock in the afternoon. While we were waiting for the results, had a leisurely cup of coffee out in the sun. Um, oblivious to what was coming and went back and was told uh, by a chemist who said I'm not a doctor um, but I believe you've probably got uh, a tumour developing on your pancreas and you need to get yourself home straight away and if you can't get home straight away you need to take yourself to A&E in uh, Sicily in the hospital. I mean, there's one way to be told that you could potentially have cancer, and then there's then there's the way you were told. I mean, that's quite unique in itself because usually when people think of being told that they potentially might have cancer, um, you, normal normally you just think of people in a consultant's office, in a hospital in the UK. Um, but your story is completely unique, and I guess that must have. I mean, obviously, with any cancer diagnosis, it's, it's absolutely horrible to hear those words. But um, how did you feel? And, and also, you were far away from home. Well, um, so I maybe I was uh, slow on the uptake. I didn't interpret the word tumour into meaning cancer. Uh, I just assumed there was something medically wrong inside me, which kind of explained some of the malaise that had been going on throughout 2019. Um, but meanwhile, I had no idea that jaundice could become quite quickly so debilitating. So even while we were waiting for our flight home a couple of days, um, I was going downhill uh, in terms of just being unable to do as much as I had been doing a few days previously. And um, it was only really when we got home and I'd been, I, I presented myself at A&E &A the following morning after we'd flown in the night before um, and being assessed and, and intriguingly enough 
they completely ignored and dismissed the, the rigorous blood test results that I had got out in Sicily and insist on doing it all again because in that arrogant way that, they, that medical people can have that their results would have to be right and anybody else's results couldn't be. Um, so we went through the whole process again, but meanwhile I was getting more and more debilitated from the jaundice that was occurring because of the blockage, because of the tumour blocking um, my uh, bile duct. And um, I, after two weeks, I'd been referred to the surgical team from ANU, and after two weeks I heard nothing, but at this stage I was becoming a zombie um, because the bilirubin was building up inside of me and making me more and more poorly. And um, it took six weeks for the surgical team in Stoke Mandeville Hospital to actually meet me face to face and say that I, they thought I had pancreatic cancer. Um, I already... Wow, six yeah. weeks is a yeah. long time. I mean, in my personal journey, I had to wait two months to get on to treatment, and that was frustrating for a number of reasons. But when it's something as serious as pancreatic cancer, I mean, that seems absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, there, there were three aspects about that, really. One was that it took so long. Um, one was that they, they could have, but, but didn't, because they just forgot about me. Uh, fitted me with a stent, which is just a, another word for a bypass. So they could, could have pushed a tube through that bypassed the blockage and relieved the bilirubin from one side of where it's accumulating to pass out of my body in the normal way, um, and therefore restored, take me out of zombie land, put me back into reasonable, normal behaviour. Um, and also, they could have had a dialogue with me during the process. I mean, my Margaret email. The consultant uh, at the four week point saying, pointing out that I'd become a zombie uh, and what was happening. Uh, and it still took a further two weeks from that before they actually got to see me. Um, so, yeah, um, not at all good. But I think the big problem was that I had, you could, you could go on the internet and you could Google whether it was the NHS or any of the other uh, internet forums. And once you put in blockage, uh, an excess jaundice blockage, excess bilirubin. It, it always straight away takes you to pancreatic cancer sites. Um, so I already, even before I had the diagnosis at six weeks, I already knew after two weeks that was likely to be the outcome. Um, so, and how did you how did you handle that? Because obviously you'd not officially been told, um, but from your research it, it pointed towards pancreatic cancer, and obviously you've been kind of hinted, it had been hinted to you um, whilst you were on holiday. How did that make you feel? Did you, um, did you just know from, from the goal get that you were going to fight this, whatever it was going to be, or how did you process it? In the six weeks as I declined, um, I, I was so zombie-like, I, I couldn't think about anything, I couldn't do anything. It was taking me two hours in the morning to get out of bed, put some clothes on, to get downstairs, to sit in the lounge and, and be, be zombie-like in the lounge and another two hours to get up in the evening back up into bed. I, I was just existing, nothing else. So I didn't really think about anything. Um, it was only really when I got the formal diagnosis 
and uh, I, I was seen on the Friday and by the Monday I was over in the Churchill Hospital having a preliminary assessment. Uh, the Churchill Hospital in Oxford um, having a preliminary assessment for surgical procedure that I then started to realise uh, the enormity of what was going on. And that was quite useful because the Churchill immediately said, why have you not had a stent fitted? And I said, I don't know, you tell me why they're not had a stent fitted. Uh, and they then arranged for that to be done that same week. In fact, I think it was two days later I was in, they tried to do it um, orally down through my esophagus, couldn't, so they eventually had to do it the following day uh, surgically through my right hand side, through, through part of my liver, uh, insert this tube and, and block me. Oh wow, so you went through a big um, surgical kind of procedure. That was, yeah, uh, that, that was relatively straightforward process of fitting a stent. Hospitals do all over the country every day of the week, so it, it, it just happened. Um, but it was only when that, that stent was fitted and, and the vial was drained off, and it, less than 24 hours, and I suddenly magically felt hugely better. I was able to focus and concentrate upon what was really being said. They offered me three choices. The Churchill Hospital offered me three choices. One was to um, do nothing, and they would provide me with palliative care uh, over the coming two years, and uh, I would be kept comfortable before I presumed I would die. Um, Another one was that I could go straight to chemotherapy um, and that might extend my lifespan to five years, but there was no guarantees. And the third one was to have surgery, probably followed by chemotherapy, uh, with no timescale put in whatsoever. And, and the bit that I still remember quite clearly, they said to me, you are young enough, and I was over 70, you are fit enough, and I was like a zombie, uh, have this surgery and we, we are happy to take you forward if you want to do that. So I plucked the surgical route there and then. Um, Absolutely and first of all I can't believe that they gave you, I mean I know this happens um, so um, but I can't believe that they told you um, option one do nothing and just you know let, let, let it take its course. It's mad still to me this to this day that they offered that kind of option. It, it's ridiculous, but I'm so glad that you took, and, and knowing you, I knew um, option three would be the one that you would take um, because you are a fighter and you definitely um, come across as someone who's not just gonna take some, you know, option one and, and let it take its course. And it sounds like you, already made your mind up that it was all you know it was going to be option three I'm, I'm assuming they gave you you know the the talk around you can go away and think about it uh, they they start to say that and i said i don't need to go away I, surgery is the route i want to go um they did revisit that discussion on the next time we met but it was already clear that where i was going to go and that was fine um yeah uh but then you know I have a wife and I have children and grandchildren and I have every reason to want to extend my life as much as I reasonably can. Absolutely. And do you think 
you know, you were, um, you said you were over 70 and they were saying you were fit enough. And, you know, do you think that was as a result of your military um, background and kind of your physical fitness had to be at a certain point, I'm assuming? Um, do you think that massively helped? I, yes. I, who knows? I certainly kept myself physically fit whilst I was in the military. And I was still pretty fit, even though I'd retired in 2004, uh, 15 years later in 2019, I was still pretty fit. You know, we were walking in Sicily um, probably 10 or 12, 15 miles a day. Um, and all of that I was just taking in my stride. So I was probably in good shape. I just didn't feel it at that moment because of the, uh, the, the jaundice and the bilirubin. <laughs> The military has certainly, the military background has certainly stood me in good stead. Uh, it's given me all sorts of values and standards that you just automatically retreat to and cling to um, because those are the reference points that I have. Absolutely. So you went down the surgical route. Was that, was that yeah. really hard? Uh, well, uh, yes, it was really hard. Uh, it's called a Whipple procedure and they never actually did any specific test to confirm that, that my tumour was cancerous. They said it's highly likely to be, um, we're expecting it to be, and frankly until we get you on the surgical table and open you up, we don't quite know what we're going to do other than remove the tumour, but you might lose some of your pancreas, you might lose most of your pancreas, you might lose all of your pancreas, um, Oh, and in the, the nine, I think it was nine risks that they list, one of them was death, uh, uh, which concentrates the mind. Um, and, uh, you know, you just sort of, they said you've got to get fitter and stronger before we can operate, um, which I tried to do, um, having had the stent fitted and the bilirubin drained off and I was starting to feel more normal. Um, so I did a lot of walking and they gave me some exercises uh, to improve my breathing and to improve my oxygen uptake, um, to keep my metabolism in good shape as well as my muscular system in good shape. And um, there was a, a delay, a month's delay on the surgical process simply because I got an infection over the Christmas of 2019-2020 um, in my liver, uh, which transpired to be quite serious. And I was kind of in a problem in the first week in January. Um, but uh, notwithstanding all of that, I, I ended up on the surgical table on the 5th of February 2020. And when they got there, they saw the magnitude of the problem and they took all of my pancreas out and they gave me what's called a total pancreatectomy, which left me uh, completely insulin dependent. Um, and I am what's called a type 3C diabetic as a result of that. Now, I've never heard of type 3C diabetic. Um, I know we've discussed this before um, when you were in kind of when you came out of surgery, I know you'd asked not you know if they could not to take your pancreas out because you knew what the consequences would be um and when you woke up they told you 
um, that they'd had to take it out and you kind of did your research. And I remember you telling me you went to a consultant and told the, the consultant, the medical consultant, that actually you didn't have type one or two, you had three C. <laughs> what was um, his reaction to that? Yes, it's, it's sufficiently rare, 3C, um, for a lot of medical practitioners to not have even heard of it, never mind know anything about it. Um, and even today, people are, not youngsters, uh, but people in, in their 30s up to their 70s are diagnosed as type 2 diabetic when actually they are not type 2 diabetic, they're type 3C, that is to say their pancreas has suffered damage. As a result of that damage, they are now diabetic. Um, and type 3C is basically diabetes coming as a result of damage to your pancreas, as opposed to type 1, which is about 10% of the diabetic population, which is an autoimmune condition, and that's uh, completely unavoidable if you've got those genes, you get the autoimmune condition and your uh, body stops making insulin or more active, more, more accurately, your uh, insulin making system gets attacked by your autoimmune system and that kills it off. But they stop making insulin. Uh, type 2 is people who, have, who make more than enough insulin, but their uh, bodies develop an insulin resistance and nobody knows exactly why that is, but it, it happens. Um, so people are making enough insulin, but their bodies are resistant to it, so they can't manage the insulin they've got, and so they need help. Um, and that's 90-odd percent of all diabetics in the country. Um, but then there's this small minority of people like me who have damaged the pancreas, and so it's not about insulin resistance, it's not about an autoimmune condition, it's because the pancreas has been damaged, and that damage can be in my case, from major surgery, the removal, that's pretty, pretty definite. Or it can be because you have a car accident, or it can be because of steroids, or because of alcohol, or pancreatitis, all sorts of different reasons why you can get damage to the pancreas. But we are all a minority, and therefore medical health practitioners don't understand it, and don't recognise the common sense of it. Even yesterday, I was reading on, on the Diabetes UK forum about somebody who had pancreatitis and has now been diagnosed as type 2. And clearly, he's not type 2, that person. He's clearly type 3 C, and, and it's fundamentally different in the treatment that's needed. But there's a medical practitioner who's said, no, you're type 2, so you've got to have this or these or medic medications, which are completely pointless and not helping in the slightest. Um, because that medical practitioner has not engaged their brain and stopped, started thinking about how can this be, uh, and it's a pain that it's yeah. And from, I know we've quite spoken at length about um, your journey, and, and I guess my journey as well, and I think what we both have in common is we both took our health into our own hands, and we both researched and researched, you know, we have um, very different um, cancer diagnosis, but we both approached it in the same way, which is kind of right, what, you know, we can't change what we have. Um, but we can influence, you know, the outcome through what we can do, and what we can change. 
would you say that's the correct way it, that you looked at it? I was during my military career, I've taught lots of things, but one of the things that was in, in, ingrained into me uh, during my scientist training and, and consistently encouraged is you need to take ownership of whatever you are doing. Uh, so in a military context, if somebody gives you an order, an instruction, but it's an order, um, you then have to take ownership of that order and go and implement it as if it, as if it was your order. So as you pass that order down the chain of command, you need to take ownership of it and, and implement it as if it's yours. And when it comes to medical treatment, you need to take ownership of your treatment. In my case was a little unusual because as a result of my surgery and the chemotherapy, um, I am with the consequent diabetes. I actually had six specialists uh, looking after me or giving an overview on me in different ways in two counties based in two different hospital trusts, the Oxford Trust and uh, the South Bucks Trust. And uh, I had to micromanage those six specialists to make sure that they each one knew about what the other five had said and what was going on because you can't leave that to the National Health Service. It's not, it's a criticism, but it's, it's also a practical reality. They're not capable of managing that broad overview. Um, and uh, if you don't take ownership uh, and sustain that broad overview and sustain the dialogue with, with the other five specialists, what any one specialist has said, then it will go wrong. And that's true of life in general. Uh, you know, you, life in general, you need to own what you do, try not to drift from that course that you've chosen, but also to accept the consequences, the good and the bad, uh, but just get on with it. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of important to take ownership. I mean, yeah, I fully understand. Um, and your situation is so unique because you had these six consultants because I've only got you know one consultant and then I have to go for regular scans and that you know adds in a couple of other consultants and managing that is really difficult so I'm constantly emailing constantly trying to make sure that the the all the dots kind of um are fully lined up or should I say all the ducks are kind of in in line um, and I find that sometimes is a full-time job. So I have scans every three months and usually in month three, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of emailing, making sure that everything is as it should be. Um, so having six must have been like a full-time job. It was, but on the other hand, I had little else to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. I'm glad you you didn't have anything to do so you could focus on your health. Um, you know, I know we've discussed this before and I know you don't mind me saying, but the, the prognosis on someone who's got pancreatic cancer is, is quite um, scary. It's not great. Um, I don't know the exact stats, but we're looking at, you know, um, 12 to 24 months, really. Um, you surpass that so you're like a walking miracle 
what what have been the fundamental changes do you think that you made following your diagnosis that really helped you um well i suppose the fundamental change is that the diabetes is with me i am insulin dependent um and if i don't take insulin five times a day then my life expectancy will drop down to very little in a very quick period of time so every morning i have to get up and take uh, a single injection to give me the 24-hour coverage and then every time i want to eat i have to take an injection to cover the food that i'm going to eat and that means thinking about what am i going to eat what's the carbohydrate content therefore how much insulin should i inject uh, and then every evening as i go to bed i have to check what my blood glucose is like so i don't go to sleep with it being too low and risk going into hyperglycemic instant while it's too low so diabetes is, is at risk of taking over my life and the, 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 the thing i'm trying to do is to manage it you can't control diabetes you can only hope to manage it um, but i'm trying to manage it but without letting it completely overwhelm me and completely overwhelm my life and that that's the difficult tightrope of finding that path between monitoring and uh, keeping on on top of it but not allowing it to totally dictate what you do every minute of every day it sometimes feels that it is dictating but to try not to um, i guess it's all part of this taking ownership like taking ownership but i'm also um accepting the good and the bad that comes out so when my sugars are too high i'm accepting that's a bit of the bad and when they're too low i'm taking action to deal with it um, and when they're somewhere in the middle that's fine um, the technology is a huge help uh, that did not exist a few years ago so i'm very grateful for the fact that i've come to this diabetes in a time when the technology is, is so much more readily available uh, and, and, and way superior to anything that existed before that absolutely because you you must wear the 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 glucose monitor right? i do i have a continuous glucose monitor on my arm um, there's no irony about this because i do a reasonable job about managing my diabetes because i stay broadly in range all the time 80 percent in range which is a, a good target seven percent is the, is the minimum suggested target that lots of people only get down only manage 50 percent but because i'm managing my diabetes quite well i'm ineligible for further technology which of course is nonsense um, because it's having to manage it all the time without the benefits of more superior technology affects my quality of life and if i had better technology then i wouldn't have to do as much management as i currently have to do um, there's no way of quantifying that and there's certainly no way of convincing the, the people within the, uh, the top echelons of the nhs that quality of life is a good aspiration and should, should be funded i i get that i don't agree with it but i get i understand why it is that um it's a problem and interestingly and you i guess like me do you're you're constantly educating yourself um, I know you attend diabetes courses. I know you read a lot on kind of diabetes just to manage, um, you know, the, the condition that you have. Um, 
that massively helps, right? I know it gives me a lot of peace, but it also brings me a lot of kind of clarity in my disease. Yes, it does for me. I, I like to know. Um, one of the things that was ingrained into me during my military career was knowledge dispels fear. And any sentence involving, any diagnosis involving uh, cancer sounds like a sentence. Um, and having knowledge about it, having knowledge about what you can do and what you can't do, what you are better doing and what you are better not doing, that knowledge helps dispel that fear. That's not for everybody. I recognise that some people find that excessive knowledge frightening and intimidating in itself and therefore prefer to not know. But that's not my way. I'm an engineer at heart and I like to know and understand how things work including how cancer works, including how diabetes works, um, and having that knowledge helps me be better prepared to manage it. So, yeah, um, knowledge dispels fear is a good mantra for me. I love that. Um, I, I, as we stand today, um, are, you, are you cancer free? Yes, as we stand today, I'm not sure it's a bit like being an alcoholic. You're, you're only ever in remission. Perhaps you don't want to hear this. Um, but I'm certainly in remission. I am cancer-free at the moment. Um, I am pragmatically aware that it can come back. Uh, and I'm alert to that. So, I, I, like you, I have regular scans. I'm, I'm off for three monthly, I'm into six monthly, and I'm hoping the one I've recently had is going to put me into annually. Um, but I recently had a couple of uh, medical incidents that made me wonder whether I was getting another tumour growing in my esophagus uh, and causing a blockage, which made me feel nauseous and bilious and so forth. And as part of this knowledge dispels fear, I have, and, and taking ownership, I have actually winged off a note to my oncologist and emailed my oncologist saying, you had the scan done a couple of weeks ago over the Christmas period. Could you please take a look and check that there's nothing going wrong in respect of my digestion, which is not where the tumour originally was, um, and just give me the reassurance that that's okay as well, because I, I just want to know that uh, it's not coming back in some hidden form. Um, and that seemed to me to be a sensible thing to ask. But again, somebody said to me, mm, do you really want to know that? And I said, well, yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm the same. I'm exactly the same, you know. And, and I guess um, when you do get, uh, you know, when you're like diagnosed with cancer, and especially when, in my case, it's stage four, you, you know, any, any, pain or ache or something that just doesn't feel right you you know your brain goes straight to could it be a new tumor growing so I completely understand the fear and you know my approach has always been I need to know so if I've got a pain which I've had in my hips for for a while um you know the latest scan I was just like we just need to make sure that we are looking at my hips really closely is there anything there and thankfully I just got my latest scan and they were they were clear but you know I, I need to know too so I I fully get that 
and I and I love it. I love you know anyone who's taking it into their own hands and 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 changing the course of the outcome through knowledge. I think is is really powerful. Yeah. So that leads me to kind of what keeps you going. Because whenever I speak to you at the hospice, you're always advocating for yourself. Yes. Um, I mean, the hospice is an interesting area to digress into for a moment. You and I were both invited to participate in a hospice user group, HUG, I love the title, being called a HUG, um, to give them assistance and guidance on matters that affect patients um, of things that they were wrestling with. Uh, and I, I love the idea that I've been asked to help with that. And I love the idea that they are uh, determined to continue to improve and to advance and, and to find out more about what they're doing and are they doing it right and so on. Um, so it, it's all good in it, on, on all sides of it. Um, but I, we both, at that first meeting of the, of the HUG, of the Hospice User Group, we both were very heavily involved from the outset. You know, as soon as we were presented with the question, you know, we got stuck in and, and looked at it and wrestled with it, and we parked anything that was going on in our own personal lives for that half hour, three quarters of an hour, whatever it was, an hour perhaps. You know, we, we just got on with wrestling with the questions that we were being asked by the hospice. Um, because we, I, I suspect we both felt that was a good thing to do for us mentally, but also a good thing for the hospice to give them our very best shot at what was a good answer and what was not a good answer. We probably overwhelmed them with the ideas. We, we <laughs> I think we might have overwhelmed them a little bit. <laughs> Um, it was it was um, an interesting meeting. But I, I, I'm glad to be able to return something to the hospice because they have been invaluable to me in providing me with a, a fallback position. Uh, I'm, I'm in a curious situation, I think you probably are as well, in that I've had a diagnosis, I've had some surgery, I've had some chemotherapy, I, I'm in remission, um, so I'm in no man's land. Um, I don't come under anybody's umbrella particularly. I come under my oncologist umbrella for looking at me periodically. I come under my diabetes consultant for looking at me more regularly and helping me get my diabetes into the best uh, management and control that's achievable. But I'm in no man's land and the hospice has stepped up and filled that gap um, by providing me with, with a framework that I can return to and, and revert to if I need to, if I've got problems, if I've got worries, got concerns of a more general nature. So for example, I did a mindfulness course through hospice, I did a hope course that uh, helped overcome problems effectively, um, which was, was good because it got me thinking and wrestling with how can I improve what I do in my own personal management. Um, and I go there for coffee mornings periodically and meet, meet others and we chat about the world at large. We generally don't chat about our ailments, um, but we sometimes do, but not very much. Uh, but it's just a, a good, soft mattress to bounce back onto um, when you're feeling a bit you know, vulnerable. That's an absolutely great way of putting it, a soft, um, nice mattress, because that's exactly 
you know, how I felt when I went to the hospice. And I know we both find or we both hold the hospice quite dear to our hearts because it, it really did give us that um, give us that hope when things were not so hopeful <laughs> or not looking so hopeful and, and has continued to. And we both give back. So I volunteer there um, every Friday with their social media team. And I know you come to all the patient um, user groups, the hug groups, um, and give your advice, which is always very sound, um, on how they can improve their services. Um, I guess when we've talked before, you've said that your wife is is your constant, is the person that has seen it all, and 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 you know one of your biggest reasons why you keep going. Yes, uh, and thank you for bringing that in. My wife has been a complete tower of strength for me. Uh, from the moment I was got jaundice out in Sicily, uh, to how she stepped up, uh, was there, uh, rushed around in the background, sorted out flights home and so forth, uh, but was encouraging and um, supportive. And through attending surgical appointments before the operation, through chemotherapy, uh, and even now, almost three years on, um, it, it's still a huge burden to her uh, having to softly encourage me, uh, support me, um, while I, and I can sometimes be get quite short-tempered, Diabetes does that to you, um, literally. When your blood sugar is low, it makes you very bad tempered. Um, you know it with your children. Um, they get when they're hungry, they get hungry. Um, yeah, I know that um, one. <laughs> it's true. It's because their blood glucose is low um, that makes them difficult to deal with, and it makes me difficult to deal with. And, and because every single meal time is an episode that I have to stop, count carbs, um, concentrate, get the insulin right, and then get the timing right. And my wife is just patiently there, absorbing and buffering all of that. And close by is my daughter who lives in, in the United Kingdom, lives nearby 30 miles away. Uh, and she's been a great support along with my wife. My son less so, not through um, denial, just simply he lives overseas and it's much more difficult for him to be actively involved in, in the day-by-day, minute-by-minute things that are going on here in the UK. Um, but yes, my wife and children have been a tower of strength throughout all of this and uh, without their support I think I probably would have gone to pieces quite readily, uh, so I'm grateful for them. Yeah, it seems to be quite a um it's one of those things where when I've spoken to quite a few people who are going through such a such a difficult journey with cancer um, some of the foundations that keep them going are you know family and friends that you know are constantly there um, looking after their diet taking their health into their own hands you know these are the people that I see doing doing well and and that's you know and that's showing that in, in you, you do all of those things, which is just, it's just, just amazing. And, you know, I don't think anyone realizes how 
dire the stats really are with pancreatic cancer um and the fact that you know you're here today three years on it it's it's it is actually a miracle so and i'm so glad i'm so glad you're still here because you know you people need to hear your story people need to hear um you know some of the lessons that you've learned from the military and you know we should be applying that in our everyday lives um i guess that leads me to quite nicely to um what advice would you give to anyone wanting to change aspects of their life and, and they have no idea where to start because you know a lot of the listeners on here they won't have cancer they might know someone with cancer but they won't have cancer but they might be wanting to change something in their life um what advice would you give them yeah so really there are three one of them is i already talked about taking ownership but apart from taking ownership one of the strong guidelines i've had almost a mantra um if you see something is wrong don't walk by if you do walk by you can burn it you can burn it you approve it and so i always come from a background where if something is wrong do something about it now the problem is how do you do something about it um and uh, all too often i've rushed in and done something about it we've done it badly and therefore not really i may have corrected the wrong but i've created other wrongs along the way uh, and caused other difficulties so how to put it right and something else i i learned specifically i remember quite clearly learning it in 1977 when i was in australia with a, a fellow australian officer and he used to say apply the test of reasonability ask yourself is this reasonable if the answer is yes go with it and if it's no go back to the test of reasonability is this reasonable until you can get an answer yes i look for solutions uh, are those solutions reasonable and then yes proceed with them um, and i think those two ideas of if you see something wrong don't walk by don't condone it and don't approve it uh, and then the solution apply the test of reasonability to ask yourself is this reasonable and those two ideas come together quite naturally to influence what i do and how i do it um don't always get it right i know i'm not perfect by any means um but nevertheless those two ideas are a very solid foundation that have come from my military background in how to manage your daily existence i i love that i absolutely love that and and people i know listening to this would find that really um encouraging because you know it change needs to change comes from just starting so you know when you know a change is required then you know you just need to start and you just need to make those you know small changes that will have a lasting impact as you go on and you know one of the things that always sticks to me is you know the fitness your fitness levels because i think if you hadn't looked after your body in those early years you probably wouldn't have been um recommended for surgery because i know when we've spoken before that whipple surgery is is really what's massively what well, it helped take away the cancer or take out the cancer um but if you had not been fit um and 
not looked after your body for all those years in the early years, you probably wouldn't have been put forward for that surgery, um, which literally would have meant life or death. So, you know, anyone listening, I think it's really important that you start looking after your body now um, through nutrition and fitness um, rather than waiting until it's too late because the problems that arise when you're a bit older, you want to be fit enough to be able to deal with them. Yes. And that's another great lesson that I think um, you've taught yes, us. Yes, I, I saw so I'm lucky with the, the physical fitness thing. Because of my military background, I required to stay fit. I've kept myself fit. Um, I did so even after I'd left the army. Um, so yes, I kind of had that springboard from the outset. But I don't think it should put anybody off from the idea that they're not fit today you're really in that category of they're seeing they should be recognizing something wrong in themselves because they're not fit today and therefore don't walk by, don't condone it, don't approve it, do something about it. Um, and that seems to me to fit in, uh, you know, with my maxims, but also makes sense. Uh, and if it doesn't make sense, that's sort of another idea. I, I often say if it doesn't make sense, it's nonsense. And why would you approve nonsense? Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, as you know, we've talked about this quite a few times. I love quotes and inspiring stories. So on a final note, I w can you share one of your favorite quotes or story that you'd like everyone to know about that is inspirational? Because um, I'd love to create a collection, basically, of inspiring stories from, you know, people um, like yourself. I'm not sure if it's... Uh, yes, I suppose an inspiring story um, is about trying to do something as well as you possibly can. And when I was small, six, seven, eight years old, I don't remember precisely when, in the house that we lived in in the country, there was a, uh, the house had a name, it's called Rycroft, R-Y-E-C-R-O-F-T, Rycroft, and uh, my father made a sign for the entrance to the house. There was a bit of a drive, drive up a hill, uh, into the, the house, the grounds of the house. And he spent ages and ages and ages hand painting this sign uh, and then creating a dust-free environment in his shed, in his workshop, um, uh, where he could varnish this sign. And he put endless coats of varnish on it. And it looked absolutely splendid down at the bottom of the drive. Uh, fixed to the brickwork to the wall um, and I he did that in 1956 7 or 58 at the latest and I remember him spending ages and ages doing it and doing it and getting it right um, and being happy with it being satisfied with it as being right and I drove past that house not many years ago uh, when I was on one of my trips down memory lane and there was the sign at the entrance and I am certain it had never been renewed. It might have had some more varnish put on it, but it was a sign that my father did, even got his little initials down in the bottom right corner, which is his trademark. Um, and because he'd done it so well, it had lasted well over 50 years, out in all weathers, fixed to the wall, and still looked clean and pristine. Um, and it, it was really a testament to, if something's worth doing, do it well. And in his case, he decided that the signs of the house was worth doing, so he's done it well. So that, for me, um, 
came as a sort of a marker when I was quite small, do it right, do it well, uh, but uh, payback by seeing it uh, much later on in life, as there, there it was testament to that. That is absolutely brilliant. 50 years on and it's still there. Um, that is brilliant. That I love that story. Thank you so much. Um, Roland, it's been an absolute pleasure, pleasure to have you um, as my first guest on More Than Meets the Eye. Um, you are truly inspirational. Um, and I'm so glad that we are friends and we know each other and we uh, and we always cross paths at the hospice. But thank you so much for giving the audience some really amazing stories and information that hopefully they can use in their life um, to better their health, increase their happiness, um, which is what this, you know, and live better, which is what this podcast is, is here to inspire. So thank you so much. And yeah, thank you for sharing such intimate um, information with us. I know it's not always easy to share cancer diagnosis and, and go over those things. Um, but thank you for doing that for us because I, I genuinely appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for asking me uh, to speak on your podcast. Uh, inspirational. I am flattered but embarrassed by the idea of that. I don't see myself as anything more than an ordinary person doing those things that I've been lucky enough to learn how to do well or to do properly or to do appropriately. Um, but thank you. And thank you so much for giving me the time.